Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Good to have you with us on this latest edition of the Bill Press Pod with a very special guest today. Well, we all remember the phenomenal job done by Congressman Jamie Raskin, the lead manager for House Democrats in the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Now, Congressman Raskin is back with a New York Times best-selling book called Unthinkable. It's a powerful book on three levels. First, the story of what it was like on the House floor on January 6th when an armed mob of Trump supporters broke into the Capitol. Second, the inside story of how House managers honed their arguments in preparation for the impeachment trial and how they proved their case, even though only seven Republican senators voted to convict. And third, a love letter by Congressman Raskin to his wonderful son, Tommy, who tragically ended his life by suicide on December 30, 2020 but whose words and examples guided Congressman Raskin every step of the way. Congressman Raskin, welcome back to the uh, Bill Press Pod. It's good to connect with you again. Well, it's great to be with you, Bill. Thank you so much, Congressman. And I have to congratulate you on your wonderful new book, Unthinkable, which I found so powerful on so powerful on three levels. One, um, a really gripping account of what happened on January 6th, uh, two, uh, the really inside story of the second impeachment trial, uh, and three, um, a beautiful tribute to your um, amazing son, Tommy. Uh, I'd like to ask you about each of those, Congressman, if I, if I may, each of those areas. Um, let's start with January 6th. Uh, some people are calling what happened, of course, a typical tourist visit, dismissing it as that. Uh, you t- tell us in your book, and we know from what we saw, it was a lot more serious. Was this, in your judgment, an attempted coup d'etat? Is it right to use the word coup for what happened? But that was the very central part of the action. Yes, there was an attempted coup. It's a weird word to use in American political parlance because we don't have a lot of experience of uh, experiencing uh, coups directly in the country. Um, and we think of a coup as something that takes place uh, by a president, um, or rather against a president. But this was a coup that took place by the president against the vice president and against the Congress. But yes, that was the the red hot center of the action. But there were the other things going on at the same time because there was uh, also a violent insurrection um, organized by and coordinated with domestic violent extremist groups like the Proud Boys, who, of course, were told to stand back and stand by by President Trump, uh, like the three percenters, like the Oath Keepers, uh, who have been charged with um, 
seditious insurrection and uh, uh, seditious conspiracy. Um, and uh, also there was a, a mass demonstration uh, called for uh, a wild uh, purpose mm-hmm. by the president, which turned into mob violence and ended up injuring uh, and wounding 150 of our officers. You talked about uh, that in, in preparation for January 6th, you and your colleagues uh, in the House uh, did a lot of research. Uh, they might try this, they might try that. Uh, and you say you were prepared for everything except violence, right? Never expected that. Well, we were preparing for a series of essentially parliamentary moves right. or uh, quasi-parliamentary moves against Joe Biden's majority of 306 in the Electoral College. Um, we also were aware that there would be violence outside, but what we were completely unprepared for was the violence entering the Capitol, essentially merging with the coup, shutting down the counting of Electoral College votes for the first time in U.S. history. Did you ever fear for your life or the life of your family members who were in the Capitol? Well, I certainly feared for for Tabitha and for my son-in-law, Hank, who had come with me on that day. Uh, Tabitha had tried to convince me not to go in, and I told her it was a constitutional requirement. It's in the 12th Amendment that on the first Wednesday of the first week of January, um, we we get together the House and the Senate to count electoral college votes. So I saw there being no choice, but I invited them to come with me and other family members and uh, Tabitha and Hank decided to come. And I, I did fear for their life because they ended up being caught in uh, Steny Hoyer's office off of the House floor. They barricaded themselves into his room with my chief of staff. They pushed the desk and other furniture up against the door, which they had locked. Mm. Um, and then they hid under a desk uh, and they were hiding under a desk for more than an hour. Um, I, I record in the book, Bill, how I uh, felt strangely no fear for myself because we had um, just suffered the worst possible loss. Uh, the very worst thing that ever could I could imagine happening had just happened. We had buried my son, Tommy, the day before on January 5th. So I, so I was in a very weird state, but I, I was experiencing a lot of anger, a lot of uh, concern for Tabitha and Hank and other people, but I was walking around not afraid at all. It is, uh, a lot of people have concluded, uh, say that Donald Trump inspired what happened on January 6th. What role do you see that he played? Did he do more than inspire, actually organize, help plan? Well, he definitely incited it. And of course, we had concurrent, uh, robust bipartisan majorities um, in Mm -hmm. both the House and the Senate, finding that he had incited violent insurrection against the union. And I think there was no doubt about that. And even though the vote was 57 to 43, falling 10 votes short of a conviction, I think he was convicted um, in the court of public opinion and convicted in the eyes of both the world and and history. But uh, since then, I believe that the, um, you know, the select committee on January 6th is 
uh, arriving rapidly to conclusion that he not just not just incited the insurrection, but he helped to coordinate and organize uh, the insurrection. But uh, you know the details are coming out now, and we're going to put together uh, a methodical narrative reciting exactly what we found. But he clearly was no innocent bystander, uh, and just as uh, the insurrection and the attempted coup were not uh, a case of his supporters presenting flowers and hugs and kisses yeah, to the police right. officers on that day. Were you surprised by Mike Pence's letter on the morning of January 6th saying, uh, I do not have the power to overturn the Electoral College. I am not going to do what the president wants me to do. I was very pleasantly surprised to receive it. Uh, I was uh, grateful that he was so emphatic and categorical about the fact that um, he had no power, uh, just like no other vice president in U.S. history had any power, simply to reject and rebuff and repudiate Electoral College votes coming in from the states. And he was uh, extremely uh, careful and painstaking in his analysis. And I was excited that he did it. I was a little bit amazed that he was also so clear about precisely what Donald Trump had been asking him to do, which was to declare these uh, extra constitutional uh, and unprecedented powers just to reject electoral college votes. And as you point out, again, and, and detailed in the book, had he done so, that would have pushed the whole question before the House, correct? As in a contingent House election, uh, what would that have amounted to? Well, that's right. The whole purpose of getting Pence to uh, try to deny Joe Biden his 306 Electoral College majority and to lower his vote total below 270 was to trigger the 12th Amendment, which says that the House of Representatives must move immediately into um, a vote for president. And you ask, why might Trump want the vote to be referred to the House where Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats were in control? Well, under the 12th Amendment, we're not voting mm -hmm. uh, one member, one vote. We're voting one state, one vote. They had 27 states after the 2020 elections we had we have 22 states on the Democratic side, and Pennsylvania is tied. So even had uh, they lost uh, Liz Cheney, the at-large representative from Wyoming, as I think they probably would have, they still would have had a 26-vote majority. They would run it very quickly, like the Republican National Convention declared a victory for Donald Trump on the floor, and he likely would have followed the advice of Michael Flynn, his disgraced former national security advisor who had been urging him to invoke the Insurrection Act and declare something like martial law in the country. And he probably would have done that and called in the National Guard to put down the insurrectionary chaos that he had uh, helped subject us to. Uh, so we've all been disappointed, uh, Congressman, and I know you're a big supporter of the Voting Rights Act, which could not get through the Senate because of Republican opposition. But is it important to pass the Electoral Reform Act, uh, not in place of the Voting Rights Act, but just to clarify uh, who has the th what authority the vice president has uh, in the electoral count? Well, I would say on balance, it would make sense for us to pass uh, some amendments to the Electoral Count Act. Uh, I hesitate only 
because of two things. One is that we don't want in any way to play into Donald Trump's hands because he, of course, has been saying that uh, Mike Pence had the power to overturn the election and nobody believes he had the power to overturn the election. Mike Pence didn't believe it. His lawyers didn't believe it. Um, we in Congress didn't believe it. Commanding majorities of the House and the Senate rejected that. And nobody in history has ever said it. So we don't want in any way to concede mm. uh, any ground to this notion that there was mm -hmm. a legitimate argument taking place because there wasn't. But the other part of it is that because of that truth, um, we're not in any danger in 2024 that Kamala Harris will get up and assert lawless right. uh, ultra-virus powers to reject electoral college votes. And so that it's not only is it not um, an important issue for the next election, it really might not be an issue at all. Having said that, you know, we could do some things that uh, at least um, elucidate what has always been understood about it. But look, we can't fight the last battle. And that's my basic point. Um, mm -hmm. The elections for 2024 and 2022 are coming under furious attack by Donald Trump and his supporters um, in the states. They want to replace the deeply ingrained tradition of bipartisan election administration with partisan election administration. They want appeals not to go to courts or to go to bipartisan bodies, but to go to GOP-controlled state legislatures. So they're trying to roll back the rights of the people to vote in early voting and weekend voting with mail-in balloting. They want to make it extremely complex. They want to make it uh, necessary to jump through a lot of hoops. And then they want to refer people to GOP-controlled bodies. And that's what we have to be focused on. The Electoral Count Act, while significant, is kind of yesterday's news at this point. Uh, and Congressman, that gets us to the impeachment trial, which we will not. Let's move into that next. But first, we'll take a quick break here uh, on the Bill Press Pod. Please hold on, and we'll be right back. I want to take advantage of uh, today's break to tell you about a wonderful organization called the American Friends Service Committee. As you'll discover uh, when you read Congressman Raskin's book, uh, it's no surprise that as a young idealist and a young pacifist, Tommy Raskin chose to go to work for the American Friends Service Committee. He's looking for a job in Washington. That's where he chose to go to work because it's a great organization that's working with people of all faiths and all backgrounds around the world to promote a world free of violence, inequality, and oppression. Check out their website at afsc.org. That's American Friends Service Committee.org. And you too can become, in memory of Tommy Raskin, a partner for peace with the American Friends Service Committee, afsc.org. This show is part of the Pro Democracy Podcast Coalition. We're partnering with the nonpartisan group Represent Us to promote efforts to protect the freedom to vote and pass laws that will make our government truly inclusive. America's democracy faces urgent threats, but there are ways we can build a fair path forward. So if you care about this issue like we do, visit represent.us slash podcast to learn more. That's represent.us slash podcast. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. 
grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with today's Bill Press Pod. Our special guest, Congressman Jamie Raskin, whose new book, Unthinkable, has been on the New York top, at the very top of the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, there's a link for you to buy the book in the episode notes of today's podcast. So, Congressman, the president is impeached for the second time. You move to the Senate. Speaker Pelosi calls you and asks you to be the lead manager of the impeachment trial. After uh, so many people, my, myself included, uh, just wonder, Congressman, having just lost your son, how you could step up to the plate. And did, did you hesitate at all? Or what inspired you to take that job? How did you find the strength and the courage to take that job? Well, Tommy was a young man of enormous moral and political passion. And I felt him very much in my heart, in my chest. And I essentially resolved that I wanted to do both in that situation and in every other situation for the rest of my life, what Tommy would support, what would make him proud. Um, and I was a wreck then. There is no doubt. I wasn't really sleeping. I wasn't really eating. Uh, and this is why I say in the book that uh, Speaker Pelosi threw me a lifeline mm. because she was essentially saying that they needed me. She needed me uh, to build this team, uh, which became a team of extraordinary impeachment managers, and to shape our case, which I think was an overwhelming and compelling uh, indictment of the president. And I think that we made our case, and it was unrefuted, and I think it's irrefutable. Um, and uh, so by throwing me that lifeline, uh, she really did bring me back into the land of the living. How do you pick the managers? Who picked the managers? Well, we discussed it together. Um, there was a very heavy emphasis on people who were on the Judiciary Committee mm -hmm. who um, were familiar with the impeachment process. Um, I wanted, above all, uh, a team of people that could work together. Uh, we were not you know, we didn't want prima donnas. We didn't want uh, tension and centrifugal tendencies. We wanted everybody to be working in a harmonious whole. And uh, I was very proud of the way that people worked like that. I mean, the very first speech that I made to the managers, what I said was, this is not going to be a collection of lectures or speeches. This is going to be one story, beginning, middle, and end that we tell to the Senate. It's going to be gripping 
and riveting. It's going to be true to the facts. And we will deal with the legal questions as they come up. But I think a lot of the people in the Senate were expecting, because I'm a constitutional law professor, that we would get up with these long lectures Mm -hmm. about the Federalist Papers. And we didn't want anything like that. We really wanted to tell a story. And what was interesting, Bill, was that most of us had no idea really what took place. We only knew it from our own perspective on the inside of the House or the inside of the Senate. We didn't see the outrageous mayhem and violence that was taking place outside the building. We didn't see people smashing our officers over the head with uh, steel pipes and Confederate battle flags and Trump flags and U.S. flags. We had no idea uh, about the medieval conditions that obtained outside the building. So we wanted to get that in there. And then, of course, we had to tell the story of what Donald Trump's plans were to try to overthrow the 2020 presidential election. I'll never forget your magnificent opening statement and the phrase that stuck with me, and I was reminded of it so much in reading your book, was your uh, assertion that there was no January exception. I mean, that was a unique concept, uh, Congressman, that I thought carried a lot of weight. Where'd that come to you? Well, how, well, how'd that you guys come up with that? I thought, yeah, brilliant, well, brilliant. of course, for four years we were dealing with just a Trump exception to the Constitution, yeah. <laughs> where he thought that he was a law unto himself, and I kept talking about a January sixth exception. But I had a, a talk with a a wonderful political uh, philosopher um, and historian, um, Timothy Snyder at Yale, um, and w- with. Um, Larry Tribe, my constitutional law professor, and mm-hmm. um, he and actually it was uh, Tim Snyder who came up with the idea of just compressing it to say January exception. There's no January exception to the Constitution, and it is very evocative of what would happen in a banana republic um, or a dictatorship where um, you know somehow the the Constitution is set aside. And that was the whole notion we were trying to reject. So the final vote was 57 to 43, as you pointed out. Obviously, you were disappointed. Do you believe it was still worth it? And why? I I know it was worth it um, because I know it was worth it because we needed to tell America the truth. And of course, even that truth was just a partial truth because it was about one guy, Donald Trump, and one crime, incitement to insurrection. But what the January 6th Select Committee has embarked upon is a far broader inquiry, um, not just into Donald Trump and one crime, but to all of the crimes that took place that he and others were involved in. And then this story about an attempt at a political coup, an attempt at a violent insurrection, and then the transformation of a mass demonstration into a mob riot. Um, And we have a big story to tell there about the role that social media played in uh, disseminating propaganda and conspiracy theory. We have a big story to tell about how this whole operation was bankrolled, who paid for it, uh, how money was made off of it. uh, And it was a money-making operation in uh, many parts of it. Uh, But then we have to tell Finally, perhaps the most important story, which is what do we need to do to Mm -hmm. fortify our democratic institutions going forward so we never suffer a nightmare like this again? 
Yes, you talk about that at the end of the book, the work ahead. Congressman, I know your time is limited. You're very generous to spend some time with us. Uh, Before we go, I have to ask you, uh, your wife is up for a big appointment, uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin. Is it fair to ask you uh, what you think her chances are? It looks like the Republicans in the Senate don't like the fact that she's a big champion of climate change. What the hell? Right. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the irony here is that Sarah has been through uh, two Senate confirmation processes before. Uh, the first time when she went on the Fed and was on the Fed for four years, and I'm not aware of any complaints they ever had about uh, her service there. She was, uh, a, she was a member of the Board of Governors of the Fed, right? She was a governor yeah. on the Fed, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, her office was right next to Janet Yellen, and on the other side was Ben Bernanke. So yeah, she was a governor on the Fed, but she uh, was unanimously confirmed that time, and uh, they didn't hold anything against her, uh, including who her husband is at that point. Um, and uh, then she was went before the Senate again when President Obama um, nominated her to become the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, and she served in that position, I think, for three or four years uh, as well. And again, um, without any audible complaint that I could discern anyway from the Republicans in the Senate, but now she's been nominated. But in the meantime, as a law professor and a public activist, she's taken very strong positions about the urgency of acting on climate change. And that's really what they've raised against her. Um, and so Basically, she's someone who's perfectly qualified as established by these prior confirmations and by all of her work, but they want to make climate silence essentially the price for holding public office today. It's just an outrageous situation. It's also possible that uh, they're trying to uh, exact some revenge, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. vicariously through Sarah uh, for the impeachment trial. I don't know. Some people have suggested that. But in any event, Sarah is perfectly qualified and should be judged on her own qualifications, which are so stellar. Well, Congressman, uh, we wish her well, and we uh, I have great faith in the Raskin family and the Raskin fight to win this particular battle uh, as well. We'll see how that goes. I want to ask you, uh, before we go, uh, I was so impressed uh, as a father myself that every step of the way that you talk about in a book— Tommy, even though he was still not there, was your guide in many ways. Um, incredible kid. He was interested in politics from his birth, it seems, right? Tell us a little bit about him. Well, he was indeed, but um, he, you know, his passions made him so much more than that. Um, and that's why, you know, oddly, I feel like my son is kind of a, a role model. Um, you know, someone that I could aspire to be like because, you know, he was a poet, he was a playwright, um, he was a law student. When we lost him, uh, he was sort of a born political genius, but he was really a philosopher and he wanted to view politics in the context of greater um, Enlightenment style commitments that he had. Um, and so, um, he was with me the whole way because, uh, there was such a profound humanity to Tommy and such a profound utilitarianism as 
you know, our daughter Tabitha said he was above all a utilitarian. He wanted the maximum good, the maximum well-being for everybody and not just people, but for all sentient beings, for animals too. And that really was the guiding light of his thinking about life. The note that he left us said, please forgive me my illness one today. Look after each other, the animals and the global poor for me. Um, And in that very tiny compressed note, um, he expressed so many of the values that he lived for his 25 years on earth. Well, it's clear from reading the book, Congressman, you had a wonderful, wonderful son, and he had uh, an incredible father. Uh, and I thank you for writing about that. Our, our guest, Congressman Jamie Raskin, uh, and his new book is Unthinkable Trauma, Truth and the Trials of American Democracy. And Congressman, we'll have a link up on our website for people to uh, purchase a copy of the book, which I strongly, strongly recommend. Thank you for who you are, Congressman. Thank you for fighting so hard on behalf of all the American people. And thanks for your time today on the Bill Press Pod. Um, It's been my pleasure, Bill. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's podcast with Congressman Jamie Raskin. Thanks so much to the good Congressman for his time joining us on the podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Uh, And don't forget, check the episode notes to today's podcast for a link to buy your copy of Unthinkable, one of the best books, really, one of the best books I have ever read. Very powerful, very moving, uh, and very informative. So uh, another busy week in Washington. We'll be keeping our eye on maybe we'll have by the end of the week a new nominee to the Supreme Court. (laughs) Maybe or maybe not. Uh, War will have broken out in Ukraine. Maybe or maybe not. Wisconsin Republicans will give up their effort to... uh, rebuke their electoral college and try to put Donald Trump back in the White House. At any rate, we'll watch all the news of the week and talk about it with our roundtable on Friday. That's next up on the Bill Press Pod. Meanwhile, have a good week. Take care of yourselves. Come back and see us on Friday for the Bill Press Pod roundtable. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.